Eight years old, with dreams of becoming a lawyer or doctor, forever extinguished as the result of one man's twisted actions. A man who was no stranger to the legal system. A man who was given far too many second chances. This little girl's death would spark outrage and once again bring to light the ever-growing concerns of the leniency and judgment of South Africa's legal system. She was not his first victim, but hopefully she will be the last. This is the story of a life cut short and a man too twisted to comprehend. This is Tasne van Veek's story. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Our episode begins with Tasne van Veek. She was born in 2011 to Carmen van Veek and Terence Manuels. At the time of our narrative beginning, she was eight years old and a big sister to two younger girls, Tamsin, who was two years old, and Tablin, who was still a baby. She lived in Ravensmead and attended the Eurocon Primary School and was in grade three. She was a good student, an all-age student actually. Loving, caring, but also strong-willed and independent. She was always kind to those who met her, helpful and willing to go the extra mile for her friends. Everyone around her was fond of her and drawn to her radiant personality. She told her parents that she wanted to work in ShopRite, a local grocery store, because there were so many chocolates there. She had her whole life ahead of her. A life that could have been full of love, a family of her own, and a career. Her ultimate dream was to become a doctor or a lawyer. She maintained that she always wanted to help people. But on the 7th of February 2020, everything would change. She was unaware that every day for that past week at her school, a man had been watching her movements. That day, which was so like any other, she had returned home from school at around 2pm. She had changed out of her school clothes and she donned a striped, coloured jumpsuit. Her father, who was at home looking after her two younger sisters, would later recall that Tasne was not wearing the shoes that she had gone to school in. Rather, she had a pair of red shoes on. When he had asked her about them, she had said that a lady in the neighbourhood had given them to her. However, it would later be discovered that the individual who had gifted her those shoes had a far more nefarious past. She then left to go to the shop, which was just down the road in the neighborhood, so her father did not think much of it. He also assumed that at some point she'd meet up with her friends as there was a community group that she used to sometimes attend. Little did he realize that watching her walk out of the front door was the last time he would see his eldest daughter alive. Carmen, Tasne's mother, had returned home from work to discover that Tasne was still not back and her friends, her usual friend group, had not seen her. At this point, the parents searched their home as well as the homes of many of the friends she used to hang out with to no avail. Later that day at around 5pm, her parents filed a missing persons report at the Ravensmead police station and thus a frantic Cape Flats community search for the young girl began. And soon after, that search was extended to the last person she was seen with according to eyewitness accounts. 
And this was a search that would continue for almost two weeks. The local department offered a budget of 10,000 rand as a reward to anyone who had information on the location of Tasne as well as the suspect whom she was last seen with. But before I talk about what ultimately happened on that day, let's meet the man who was behind her disappearance. Before I introduce you to this man, I just want to let you know that I struggled with whether or not I should publish his name. His name has been published freely on all social media from the time of the incident up until the beginning of the trial. However, as more information was unearthed during the trial, some publications decided to stop publishing his information. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, by this time, the cat was out the proverbial bag. For myself personally, I have decided to name him as I think it is only fair and right for Tasne's memory that her killer has a name. But in saying that and doing so, I've also taken the steps to omit any identifying information of other victims that have encountered this man. And so, as you listen to this entire narrative, I hope my decision makes sense. So, here we go. Unfortunately, besides the testimony that Mohedin would later give, there was not very much available on his childhood. Mohedin would say that he had been married twice and he had eight children with different women, but he could not remember all their names. Although Mohedin had initially said that he left school in grade 8, he had then amended this to say he left school in grade 7, but he was basically illiterate and could not read or write. Mohedin Pangakar was no stranger to the law before he was arrested for his heinous crime against Tasne. To summarize his rap sheet, which is incredibly lengthy, here are some of his previous convictions and charges that date back all the way to 1981. In 1981, he was sentenced for the crimes of housebreaking and theft in Elsie's River. In 1988, he was sentenced for assault in Ravensmead. Two years later, he got married in 1990 under Islamic rights, and the couple had a daughter. The marriage did not last long though, and they later separated. Between 2015 and 2016, they would resume their relationship. But the importance of me mentioning this segment is that almost 30 years after their marriage, his ex-wife would be instrumental in helping to bring him to justice. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so more on that soon. The following year in 1991, he had yet another run-in with the law in Kimberley. In 1993, his behavior escalated as he sexually assaulted a young teen relative whilst she was asleep. A few years later, in 1998, in a tiny town in Lanesburg, he was sentenced for housebreaking. In 2001, he would commit yet another heinous and disturbing crime. The victim of this crime? His own son. He had kidnapped the young boy from the boy's mother's home in Ladysmith. Between April and June of 2001, he repeatedly abused him, hitting him with an open hand or a belt. On June 15th of that very same year, 2001, the little boy who was named after him, Moyhadeen, died as a result of the injuries he had sustained. The child had been found, abused with cigarette burns covering his body. Moyhadeen was charged with murder initially, but was found guilty and sentenced for charges of culpable homicide abduction and child neglect. The sentence was 10 years for the homicide, while the other sentenced charges for kidnapping and child abuse would run concurrently. When he was eventually sentenced, he served 8 of those 10 years, 
before being released for parole in 2016. During these years, whilst he was out of prison, at some points in time, he would work as a refuse truck emptier at a municipal dump in Canaland, and at other times as a worker for a dried fruit plant. In 2016, he had worked security at a nightclub. A few years later, he would break his correctional supervision, his parole conditions, by moving out of Ladysmith to Elsie's River. And it was around that time that he would strike again, with another relative as his target. During his later trial, his brother's wife, his sister-in-law, would testify as to how he was banished from their home. This came about after he had allegedly sexually assaulted a little girl and then tried to offer her money. The 56-year-old soft-spoken woman testified that she had been married to his brother for 38 years and they lived in Elsie's River. Years before Tasney's disappearance, a close relative of hers attended a party that had been hosted for their nephew who had just been released from prison. At the time, Mohedin had been staying at a friend's flat nearby, but she was out of town for that weekend. After the party, Mohedin had offered to give this lady's close relative a ride home on his bike as they didn't have transport. She loved him and so she willingly went with him and no one really gave it a second thought. But instead of dropping her home as he had promised, he took her to the empty flat and there he did the unthinkable. Later that night, when she had returned home, she had burst into tears. Upon inquiring as to what the matter was, the little girl had said that Uncle Mohedin had kissed her and put his tongue in her mouth. She said that he wanted to touch her private parts and told her that he wanted to take a peek. He then allegedly offered her money. Immediately, herself and her husband, his brother, confronted Mohedin, who of course denied all the allegations, claiming that the little girl was lying. But his brother knew better. He stood by his belief that this little girl would not know or want to make up such stories. And so he told Mohedin to never come back to their home. But although he would not return to their home, Mohedin was not done there. In 2015, after being released on parole, he absconded from the Belleville community's corrections. Mohedin was also accused of raping a woman in Ladysmith in 2016. Between 2016 and 2019, he would rape a minor girl four times in Ladysmith and he would take the same child to the dam where he sexually assaulted and raped her. Mohedin's actions towards his own blood relatives was disturbing to say the least. His ex-wife who had gotten back together with him would later leave him after discovering the incestuous relationship he was having with one of his blood relatives. He would later be arrested and found guilty of driving a vehicle without authority and possession of a stolen vehicle later that year. He was then placed on parole supervision at Ladysmith Community Corrections between October of 2016 and May of 2019, but he then once again absconded supervision and a case for absconding was opened. Between the years of 2016 to 2019, he would allegedly rape one of his relatives, a blood relation, multiple times. One of these assaults would lead to her falling pregnant, and thus the charge of incest would later be brought against him in the trial that would follow. In November of 2019, he was back in Cape Town in Elsie's River, and he had actually visited his sister with some members of his family. With him and the relatives that he had travelled with was a three-month-old baby boy. 
When asked about the father of the baby, the mother of the child, a relative of Mohedin's, claimed that the father had died in Durban. It would, however, later be revealed that Mohedin was the father. And then, one day, without word or notice, his sister would return home to find Mohedin and the rest of the family gone. And she wouldn't see him again until the trial. It would also later transpire that just a few months before Tazne's disappearance, Mohedin had assaulted another relative, threatening her life. He also argued with his daughter, attacking her and leaving her hospitalized. He was arrested once again, but given bail for some reason. But he would fail to appear in court and abscond to Ravensmead. And this is where his path would cross with little Tazne. A day before her disappearance, he was officially considered an absconder after the Correctional Services Department were unable to reach him. Tazne's family would later say that they didn't really know Mohedin. He had just moved in down the road from them. He was just another neighbor. Unfortunately, this is more common than not within the perpetrators I speak about. Danger lurks closer than you could ever imagine. The list of his heinous abuse goes on and on. All of the incidents I have mentioned are ones that were reported and that he was actually convicted for. But there is probably so much more just below the surface that he has gotten away with. There are accounts of him beating relatives whilst they were pregnant, to the point where they went into labor. There are accounts of him beating his own children, to the point that they have been hospitalized. His crimes began in his teenage years, and they spanned his entire lifetime. He had been incarcerated on 12 different occasions. This shows us that the police were doing their job, at least, and he was being put behind bars. But it was the parole boards and the criminal system that continuously allowed him to get out, time and time again. By the time he would be involved with Tasnay van Veik, he was in his mid-50s. So now that you're up to speed with what we can know for the moment about the disturbing narrative of Mohedin Pangakar, let's catch up with what happened to Tasnay van Veik. The last time I was discussing her, she had been lured away from her home and away from safety by Mohedin. Several witnesses would attest to seeing the two not far from her home at a local restaurant. Taxi driver would later testify that he had picked up the two near ShopRite and he had given them a lift to the Paro train station where he saw them walking into the station. But what happened from there? Well, a witness would later take the stand at the trial, Alison Carrolls. And she would give testimony as perhaps the last person to ever see little Tazne van Veik alive. She had come across Mohedin, unknown to her, as well as the young girl, that evening of that very same day, as they were walking on the N1. This was near Worcester. She was concerned about the child, and so she asked the driver of the vehicle she was traveling in to turn around and stop by the pair. When the man was questioned about where they were going, he had told the group in the vehicle that they were traveling to the child's mother, who was in Beaufort West. After offering them a ride, which the pair had accepted, the little girl got into the back seat with the woman and the man sat in the front. The little girl, who we now know was Tazne, had a backpack and the man had luggage with him. 
Alison recalls the little girl as friendly and they spoke as though they had known each other for years. Alison had then asked her landlord if the pair could spend the night as she was worried that the little girl would get cold as she was wearing shorts and it was quite cold outside that night. Moihadin, however, had refused that offer, saying that they needed to get to their destination. At a nearby garage, Alison tried to secure a lift for the young girl and this man to Beaufort West, but unfortunately she was not successful. And so the pair had exited their vehicle and left. And this is the last time she would ever see little Tasne Van CCTV footage from around 11.50pm would showcase Tasne walking alongside her kidnapper, away from Bergsich Motors. She had a jacket on that was way too big for her, and a water bottle in her hand. The pair were headed towards De Duerns, a quiet little suburb in Breda Valley near Vosta an hour and a half away from Ravensmead. The following morning, as social media was abuzz sharing Tasne van Veek's information, Alison was shown a picture of this little girl by her landlord. The little face of Tasne stared back at her, which she immediately recognized. And Moihadin's cold eyes looked into her, eyes that she would never forget. She had then contacted the police. It would, however, though, be too late for little Tasne but I'll explain shortly. As the news of his alleged involvement, along with his face, was spread across social media and news media platforms, Moihadin had absconded to Craddock, a nine-hour drive from Cape Town. His friends and family desperately tried to find him, urging him to come back and face the allegations against him. And in the meantime, they were facing the brunt of the community's anger. This, unfortunately, is also incredibly common. Whilst there may be many family members who are complicit in the perpetrator's actions, there are also a great deal of individuals related to the perpetrator who have no idea about the kind of person that this perpetrator is. But unfortunately, because they share a relation with the perpetrator, they are painted with the same brush. His twin sister, Nasli, would take to the stand at his later trial and testify to the conversation that she had with her brother after the kidnapping of Tasne. She had been contacted that day by some community members who were seeking Moihadin and the child. She had then managed to find a contact number for her brother, but the call had dropped. She did, however, manage to speak to him on the Sunday after Tasne went missing. And during that conversation, he denied taking the girl. She had asked him about it as she had been questioned by others about the disappearance. She then begged him to just bring the child home. She had said to him, I can't sleep. People are looking for this child. I am sick. People are saying you have the child and went to paro with the child. People are saying they saw you. The Somalian at the shop said you told the child, come here, come here. Their conversation, which lasted around eight minutes, included him repeatedly insisting that he did not have the child, despite the fact that he had been spotted with her at Paro train station. Throughout their call, she would later testify that he was not scared or emotionally bothered by the conversation. He would continue to deny the accusations, calling it nonsense. She then warned him to come home, saying that she did not want him to get hurt and telling him that if he was innocent, he would have no problem in telling her where he was. But he was not budging. 
When the news had hit the media, one of his children, his daughter actually, had made a public plea, begging him to please return the little girl. Her mother, Mohedin, had been married in Elsie's River when she was a baby, but at age 11, her mother divorced him, and the contact from that point on between the families was scarce. That was until he had been released from jail and he had returned to Elsie's River. That December, the December prior to Tasne's disappearance, when he had returned, he had also been charged with assault in Worcester. And that very same December, he also tried to snatch his daughter's 11-year-old son. She would later say, My mother always told me that he is a sick mens, and I must not let him near my children. Basically, sick mens in Afrikaans is a sick person. After his daughter had intervened, Moihadin had disappeared. And it was the following year that he would strike again. He would later go on to say that when he skipped parole in January of 2019, it was on purpose. He would assert that he was leaving to Johannesburg for a job that he had secured and he had attempted to tell senior correctional services. However, no one was in the office when he had visited. So as I previously mentioned, one of his ex-wives, the woman that he had married in 1990, was instrumental in bringing him to justice. She had borne witness to the violence relationship that he had with their children where he had abused and manipulated them. He fought often with her daughter, in one instance even punching her in the face after a disagreement. But I digress. After Mohedin was identified as a suspect, she had called him under the presence of police, pretending that she wanted to get back together and reconcile. He had agreed to meet her but never disclosed his location, redirecting her whilst they remained in cell phone contact. This was how, working hand in hand with the police, they were able to track Mohedin's movements as he led her from Cape Town towards Port Elizabeth. How he managed to get so far without being recognized is another question. Eventually, they had ended up in Craddock, where he told her that he wanted to meet her in a hotel. It was here that he had arrived in a truck. She had helped him with his backpack and the two had entered the hotel. Here she had also asked him about the allegations of abuse towards one of his victims, where he had responded she was asking for it. As he checked into the hotel, she called the detective and police descended upon the premises. And this was when he was arrested. To keep up with the facade, she had told the police to arrest them both. And so, on the 18th of February, the alleged kidnapper had been caught. But there was still no word on Tasne. His sister would attempt to speak to him whilst he was detained, but he denied killing Tasne. He would then make up an elaborate narrative, including a taxi, three African individuals, and a kidnapping, which he was a victim of. However, the next day, he would lead the police to the body of Tasne. She was found decomposing in a stormwater drain on the N1, not too far from where she was last spotted on CCTV footage. The cause of Tasne van Veek's death was ascertained by a medical expert to be a combination of three different types of injuries. By studying the fracture at the base of her skull, it was shown that Tasne sustained a blow to the right side of her head, which even for an adult would be fatal. 
In addition, the hyoid bone, a U-shaped bone in the neck that moves the muscles for swallowing and talking, was also broken on either side. The forensic expert, Celeste Ingrid Herbst, stated that it is usually indicative of blunt force trauma or an application of force to the anterior neck. In plain terms, this would highlight that she was most likely strangled. And due to the severity of her injuries, she was strangled with quite a bit of force. In addition, the injuries to her chest highlighted that the bones were fractured, which would take severe force and multiple blows to do so. An anthropology expert, Professor Jackie Friedling, said that whilst it was difficult to determine whether Tasne was sexually assaulted, the injury to the interior of her pelvic bone was consistent with penetration. In a later conversation between himself and his sister at the Goodwood prison, Mohideen had a brand new narrative. In this narrative, he would claim that he was scared to admit that Tasne had been with him because others would unfairly judge the situation and think that he was to blame. In his new version of events, Tasne was killed by African kidnappers. But the story gets even more unbelievable, so buckle up. In his version of events, on the day in question, he was stopped and asked for directions by a taxi. Within this taxi, there were two African men and an African female. It just so happened that Tasne was standing in the same area that he was and she overheard the conversation. She then offered to assist the group with the location they were trying to find and she had then gotten into the taxi. He didn't want her to go alone and so he had entered the taxi too. It was at this point that the people in the taxi decided to take them hostage and not let them exit. They then drove them all the way to Worcester, about an hour and a half away. And then, although they had been kidnapped and driven an hour and a half away from where they had started off, they were just released. It makes zero sense. But anyway, it was at this point that he said they bumped into the witness who would later testify that she had given Tasne and himself a ride. After they had left their vehicle, after the CCTV footage, they had been walking along the highway when a bucky had pulled up next to them. He then saw, would you know, none other than the same occupants from the taxi, but this time they were in a bucky. The two were then abducted once again and they were driven up and down the highway until they had eventually come to stop at a river in Worcester. He was then tied up and beaten and thus unable to assist Tasne, who was also being attacked by these occupants of the vehicle. He would then state that as Tasne was screaming, he had attempted to go towards the little girl, but it was very dark and he almost fell out of the vehicle onto his face. He would also add that when they were carrying her body to the pipe, all he could see was a plastic bag and her little head hanging. In order to explain how his DNA had ended up under Tasne's fingernails, he would go on to show the court a scar on his arm, where he claims that Tasne had scratched him. His version of events is that while he was lying on his stomach, tied up in the bucky, there was an incident where Tasne had been removed from the vehicle, and as he reached out his hand to her, she accidentally had scratched him amidst the chaos. When asked why he didn't simply fight back, especially being a tall muscular man who worked as a security guard at a nightclub, he had responded, It doesn't work, sir. I don't like fighting. I hate fighting. 
He would then later claim that no, they had not asked him for directions, but rather this taxi had driven up to him and blocked him off whilst he was on his way to mosque. He would then claim that the foreign nationals who abducted him were drug dealers and they weren't sure of where their drop was. So yeah, as per Mohedin's version of events, he was innocent and he only tried to help Tasnay every step of the way. Seems highly likely. During the trial, his sister would also state that Mohedin had said that Tasnay's hand was cut off as part of a Muti ritual. So for those not from South Africa, Muti is a Zulu word used to describe a natural traditional medicine. It is often prescribed by traditional healers. But here is where the dark side to the seemingly normal practice comes in. The idea of a Muti murder is often linked to the occult, but it differs from a ritual murder, which has stronger links to appeasing deities, etc. The main aim, however, of a Muti murder is to obtain body parts for the medicine that is required. These ingredients, shall we call them, are obtained by a third party, not the traditional healer themselves. The medicine can then be made with the end result of granting another person health, power, wealth or strength. But that explanation is really just the tip of the iceberg and an incredibly short summarized version of the term I'm trying to explain. But the desecration of Tasnay's little body was not for medicinal purposes. The real truth of the matter is that DNA from Mohadeen was found under Tasnay's fingernails. So his desecration of her corpse was an attempt to cover his tracks. But he would not be getting away that easy this time around. After many delays due to the pandemonium of the world, the murder trial was set to begin in 2021. However, once again, due to a backlog created as a result of the lockdown, the case was postponed to May of 2022. When it eventually began though, on the 18th of May, and the witnesses began to testify, the state intended to call around 80 to 90 individuals. More shocking narratives came to light. Initially, the trial was closed to the public and the media, and this was due to the fact that many of the witnesses and victims testifying were minors, and the charges were of a sexual nature. Mohedin initially faced 12 rape charges, 2 counts of kidnapping, 3 counts of sexual assault, and charges of grooming and sexually exploiting children. He pleaded not guilty to all the charges, seemingly unperturbed at the situation he found himself in. About three weeks into the trial, it would face yet another delay as Mohadin was severely assaulted in the police vehicle on his way from Polsmore Prison to the court. He was left with cracked ribs, swollen eyes and a bruised face. It is also alleged that one of the inmates who attacked him bit a portion of his ear off, which had to be reattached. I'm pretty sure it's kind of well known around the world how inmates treat those who have harmed children. The trial would go on to face many other delays, either due to legal representation issues or Mohedin falling ill. During one session, he appeared in court with a quarter loaf of sliced bread tied to his waistband as he stretched out along the dock, listening to the testimony of various witnesses. But as the trial progressed, so did the state's charges against Mohedin. The state amended the indictment to include 27 charges of rape, murder, assault, incest, and the sexual grooming of children. Mohedin's response? 
Oh, all these accusers are just speaking out because of the attention that this case is getting. Excuse me? The victim had suffered multiple sexual assaults at the hands of Mohadin throughout 2016 to 2019, would later testify in camera during the trial. Upon hearing her testimony, Mohadin would firstly deny it and secondly state that she has an agenda. He claimed that she was very clever and she would often tell lies as a child. During his cross-examination, he was visibly agitated. He would then claim that another victim who had stated she had been raped in the bushes by him was actually the one who had forced him to have sex with her. The community, on the other hand, though, were far from blasé about this entire ordeal. During his court appearances, a furious crowd tore down a gate at court, and police reinforcements had to be called. A house where Mohadin had allegedly held Tasne hostage in Paro for three days was burned, along with three suspected drug dens. And so the trial proceeded. Eventually, though, after years at this point of anguish, the parents of Tasne van Veik and many Many of Mohadin's victims finally received some form of closure as the acting judge delivered his verdict. In October of 2022, Judge Alan Maher found Mohadin guilty of kidnapping, raping, and murdering Tazne, as well as 17 counts of rape and assault of minors. These sexual assaults were committed between 2016 and 2019, during which time he had also breached his parole conditions and had been on the run. Altogether, he was found guilty of 22 of the 27 charges brought against him. He is set to be sentenced on the 16th of January, 2023. I'll be sure to update the description of this episode once the sentence has been passed down. From a psychological perspective, without knowing much at all about Moihedin's childhood, and without any access or knowledge of psychological assessments being completed, we cannot truly really know the circumstances and environment that led up to his adult actions. But what we can know is that, as with many other sexual assaults, the ultimate goal is often power. And unfortunately, achieving this power is so much easier to do for a predator when your victim is smaller, younger, and easier to control. Moihedin took it a step further and not only targeted minors but targeted those who trusted him and who knew him well, his own family. The psychological impact for the victims of his heinous actions are far-reaching, with experiences of increased depression, lowered self-esteem and pervasive interpersonal difficulties not uncommon. And it's also difficult for these victims to receive the help they need in many cases due to the subversive stigma around the abuse that exists. And the behaviours that are termed grooming can in many cases create the path that leads to the ultimate abuse. Grooming itself is when someone builds a relationship, trust and emotional connection with a child or young person so that they can manipulate, exploit and abuse them. The common steps in the grooming process involve identifying and targeting the victim. Any child or teen could be a potential victim. Gaining trust and access to the victim. There's the element of playing a role in the child's life which makes the overall process a little bit easier. For these groomers it is important that they not only isolate the child but also create secrecy around the relationship that exists between the two of them. And once these steps have been completed and a relationship has been developed, they will then initiate sexual contact. From this point on, controlling the relationship is the main concern of the predator. 
There is so much more that I could discuss on this topic, but in a nutshell, this is why it's important as parents to be hyper aware of not only the individuals your child is constantly surrounded by, but also any changes in their behaviors. These predators lurk in places you would least expect them. Moy Hadin being a case in point. So although it may appear as though justice has been served, that is entirely not the case. The biggest problem with this narrative is that time after time, Mohadeen was released, allowed to roam the streets. And this is where the bigger discussion needs to be had. As a country, our government continues to lambast and condemn gender-based violence. And as people, we push and protest for harsher punishments and longer sentences. But what is the point of all of this if time and time again, the perpetrators of disturbing and heinous crimes are granted the opportunities for early parole and releases? The system is failing and these failures are resulting in more innocent lives being lost. Living in an area where gangsterism and the culture of violence is evident in so many daily narratives, Tasne's parents did everything they could to protect her. The year prior to her murder, they had moved her to a primary school closer to their home because of the rampant gangsterism in the area. They figured if she was closer and she did not have to walk and commute so far, she would be safer. But they could not account for a danger known to authorities let loose in the area. Mohedin was released on parole twice and it was whilst on parole, a parole that was actually broken by moving out of the city, that he kidnapped and murdered Tazne. He had multiple previous offenses with violence and sexual violence against children and a history of run-ins with the law that started in his teens. But yet his application for parole was accepted, not once but twice. He was somehow deemed a fit as a candidate to be released. And the worst part, he's not even an isolated case. I don't even know how many cases I've spoken about on my series alone, where a perpetrator has been released from prison on parole and they've gone on to commit the most heinous and disturbing crimes. Yet again. And this is the point where many believe that the death penalty should be brought back. And that in itself is a whole other debate altogether. One that I'd be interested to hear what you as the listener thinks too. But regardless of death penalty or not, perpetrators of violence, particularly against women and children, should not even be considered for parole. This was also a promise that had been made by Soral Ramaphosa in the year prior to Tasne's murder. As I've mentioned before, a life term in South Africa equates to 25 years. The use of the word life is merely just for show. So basically, unless deemed otherwise a dangerous criminal as per sections 28 of the Criminal Procedures Act, after 25 years behind bars, a perpetrator is eligible to apply for parole. Of course, whether or not that is granted is a different story altogether. The entire process, however, is riddled with controversy and confusion, especially for the victims of violent crimes or their families. In some instances, the families or victims themselves are not even aware or consulted during the parole hearings of their perpetrators. The parole process is complex, but in so many cases, the parole boards decide that offenders are fit to be released, only for them to get out and commit the most heinous crimes, 
against women and children most of the time. There is a desperate need for more stringent measures to be put into place. These would include assessments of offenders and actually following the advice of criminologists and psychiatrists. This is especially important given the astoundingly and disturbing high numbers of gender-based crimes and femicide in the country. I mean, South Africa's murder rate is up 11.5% in the first quarter of this year, 2022. From April to June, 855 women and 243 children, reported numbers only, were killed. There are so many stories daily of serial offenders with incredibly long rap sheets having the opportunity to re-offend time and time again. At this point, it's not even shocking news to the public. And this is how disturbing our reality is. It's incredibly difficult to accurately assess, but it is believed that the recidivism rate, i.e. the rate of re-offending, is between 55 and 95% in the country. Many believe that this is due to a lack of employment and economic opportunity, combined with unhealthy social interactions during incarceration, i.e. gang life, but also taking into account mental health issues, absent reintegration strategies, and of course, substance dependency issues. Honestly, there are so many more avenues that I can elaborate on when speaking about this topic, but that is perhaps for another episode altogether. The reasons for these high rates are multidimensional, but they all lead back to one main point. Our government is not doing near enough. And this is on a large scale or even a relatively small scale. After the shocking murder of Tasne came to light, the president of the time, Cyril Ramaphosa, had visited her family and made promises of a home. But months down the line, it was not a home that was built for them, but rather a Wendy house. He would later state that he was going to take action to fulfill his promises, as he was mortified that his promise of a house had somehow been misconstrued along the way. In the meantime, as Tasne's family waits, they have tried to move on as best as they can, given the fact that there are still two young girls who need their parents, who need to be protected. They do their best to honor her memory, her father carrying a picture of her with him everywhere he goes. In their home, they have many pictures of her, and their youngest daughter is always kissing and smiling at these pictures. The older of the two girls often speaks about her sister, Tasne. She misses her. One day, they will be told about the tragic way that her life came to an end. One day, they will have to face that knowledge. Although Mohedin is finally behind bars, hopefully for good this time, the justice that has been ultimately dealt has been at the cost of another innocent life. Another little girl in South Africa will never grow up to become a teenager. Another little girl will never have the chance to graduate, get her first job, get married, have a career of her own, or even have children. Another little girl's life has been stolen before it even had the chance to begin. And this is yet another reason why something has got to change. Until next week, my loves, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!